Hello and welcome back. My name is Dr. Christopher Gennari and this is Great Big History Podcast. In this episode we do Cyrus, Cambyses, Darius I, and the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire is the most successful, largest of the ancient Mesopotamian empires. It's also the last. It will conquer Mesopotamia, Iran, central parts of Central Asia, all the way out to India, the Asia Minor, parts of Europe, and Egypt. It is the largest empire that we've talked about so far and had 25% of the Earth's population within it. Who made it? Cyrus the Great. Now repeat after me, ladies and gentlemen, Cyrus is the man. Yes, Cyrus is the man. Cyrus is the man. How do I know he's the man? Because he even has a body wash named after him. Here we are, 2,500 years later, he's got a body wash. Do you have a body wash? No. I don't have a body wash. You don't have a body wash. Cyrus does. Cyrus was famous in his own day. So what made Cyrus Cyrus the Great? Well, first was military victory. He wins wars. He even dies in a battle. A battle he wins, which never happens. If the general dies in the battle, you usually lose the battle. Leonidas at Thermopylae. Cyrus was so good, he died in the battle and still won. But he was also nice. Persian legitimacy was based on niceness. He learned from the Assyrians and did the opposite. Cyrus also had his own personal trauma. He has an origin story because his grandfather tried to kill him and he eventually had to kill his own grandfather. Or keep him as a slave prisoner in his old age. There's different stories. But the idea is he, his grandfather tried to kill him. Because the grandfather had a premonition that Cyrus as a baby would one day try to replace him. Would grow up to try to murder the grandfather. And so the grandfather tried to kill Cyrus. And Cyrus then fulfills the, fulfills the prophecy by starting a revolution against the grandfather in order to save himself and overthrows the grandfather. He defeats his Median granddad. He's actually ha Median. His mother was a Median princess and she was married to a Persian prince kind of to get them out of the way. Um, he overthrows his granddad. What does he do? He marries a Median princess. And that's very important because instead of murdering the Medes, like the Assyrians would have done, he marries into them. He assimilates them so that they mix to such an extent. His generals will marry Median princesses that the Persians and the Medes mix to such an extent that um, the Greeks had a joke or had a way of saying, you know how we say six of one, half a dozen of the other, meaning it's the same thing, just a different way of explaining it. The Greeks had a joke or a statement that was one man's Mede is another man's Persian. In fact, Herodotus mixes and matches them all the time. He calls them Medes, he calls them Persians, he goes back to Medes. To, to the Greeks, they were the same. And that's because of Cyrus. Cyrus will mix them together. That's very different from the Assyrians. The Assyrians murdered everybody. He defeats Lydia. 
And then lets the Lydian king stay in charge. Now he defeats the Lydians by using his smarts, not his military strength. He doesn't run over them the way the Assyrians would have or did. He's smart. The Lydians had excellent cavalry, had a great cavalry army. And what Cyrus realized was horses don't like the smell of camel pee. And so what he did was have his men collect, now imagine having that job, collect barrels of camel pee so that when the Lydians charged his, his army, they waited and they waited and they waited and these men are charging on them and their giant horses with their spears out and right at like kind of near the last second, Cyrus says, push, and they push down the barrels. The camel pee goes out into the, into the, into the plain. The horses smell it. They go crazy. They run off the field. Cyrus's army then marches forward and wins the day. But instead of murdering the Lydian king who fought against him, who attacked him, and it's in fact the Lydian king who attacked Cyrus, he lets him stay in charge. He lets him stay king. Why? Because he says, you know more about the Lydians than anybody else. Stay king. Just make sure I get my taxes. And the Lydian king says, you mean I get to stay alive and have a great lifestyle? And Cyrus says, of course you do. You just have to do what I say once in a while. And the Lydian king says, that's great. I could do that. So he gains the loyalty of the Lydian king to be in charge of the Lydians rather than murdering the Lydian king like the Assyrians would have done and setting the seeds for a future revolt. Hey, Babylon opened their gates to him. He marched on Babylon. And instead of Babylon fighting him, they opened their gates. Said, come on in. We want you to be king. In Babylon, he frees the Hebrews who had been enslaved by Nebuchadnezzar in 585 B.C. And he returns them to Judah. He helps rebuild the temple. He is called a Messiah. Now that's crazy. That is absolutely crazy PR. Why? Because a Messiah in, is, is anointed. It means blessed by God. But what a Messiah means when it talks about a person, and there's only a few mentioned in the Old Testament, and there's only one who's not Jewish, and that's Cyrus, that means the Jewish God has sent this person to help the Jewish people. And why is that crazy? Because Cyrus doesn't believe in the Jewish God, isn't Jewish, and isn't Hebrew, isn't a Judean. He's a Persian. So that's crazy awesome PR. Isaiah 45, 1 to 3. Thus say the Lord to his anointed, meaning his Messiah, to Cyrus, whom he has taken by his right hand. Now that shows how close they are, right? He has taken Cyrus by God's right hand, right? You know, like we talk about Jesus at the right hand of the Father. So the right, because most people are right-handed, you always use right hand as meaning strength, as closeness. You take them by his right hand to subdue nations before him, to strip the loins of kings, to force gateways before him that their gates be closed no more. That's, that's by the way, a reference to Babylon. I will go before you leveling the heights. That's the Tarsus Mountains, separating Mesopotamia from Asia Minor. I shall shatter the bronze gateways. Again, we go back to gates. That's Babylon. 
Babylon was famous for these giant 60-foot-tall bronze gates. Smash the iron bars. I will give you the hidden treasures, the secret hordes, that you may know my name is the Lord. Like, holy shnikes. And no, none of that. None of that is about the Hebrews. None of that is about a Jewish person. That is about Cyrus conquering other peoples. So what does this all show? The marrying of the Median princesses, the helping the Lydian king stay in charge despite defeating him, the opening the gates of Babylon, the freeing the enslaved Hebrews. It shows that niceness works. Loyalty. And it becomes legitimacy. People don't revolt. And they listen to you. The Hebrews never revolt against the Persians. Ever. Now, I know there's a book, the book of Esther, and it's about, oh, a Persian king wanted to murder all the Hebrews. There's no history to that. It's a nice story about a Jewish woman, but it's not historical. There's no history in it. The Persians don't want to wipe out the Hebrews. There's no need to wipe out the Hebrews. The Hebrews were loyal. They joined the Persian army. They have helped the Persian king, Darius the third, this is 180 years later, fight Alexander. In fact, they will not help Alexander. So when Alexander shows up, Alexander's like, well, you guys are all loyal to the Persian king. I'm going to have to kill you all. And they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. We're loyal to the Persian king, but you've won, so we're not going to fight you anymore. You can do what you want, but don't ask us to fight the Persian king. We're still loyal to him. So we won't stop you. You Greeks are crazy and you're doing whatever you're doing. That's okay. We won't revolt against you, but we're not fighting him. And Alexander's like, yeah, that's okay. That's cool. I understand that because you took oaths of loyalty to the Persian king. I understand you're bound by loyalty. I understand that. I'm going to win your loyalty after I defeat the Persian king. People don't revolt. They listen to you. So unlike the terrorism of the Assyrians, what Cyrus creates is this idea that the Persian king, the Persians, the conquerors, can be nice, can do things for you, can help you. What about Cambyses? So Cyrus will die. He'll die in battle. What about Cambyses, Cyrus's son? Well, he wants to be like Dad. And he looks at the map and says, Dad conquered everything. This sucks. And someone says, well, there's Egypt, the richest place in the world. And Cambyses says, I will conquer Egypt. And he said, well, you have to get across the desert. He says, I will get a navy. And they go, oh, okay. And then you could conquer Egypt. You can invade it and do what you want. I'm sure um, it won't be that hard. And it wasn't. They crossed the Sinai Desert. They have their navy. They have their army. Now, this is important because it shows what will eventually be the invasion of Greece. This combination of infantry plus navy. The navy is bringing the water and the food. The infantry is marching in order to do battle. They invade Egypt. It's the only place left, but it is the richest place on earth. He conquers Egypt. He wins, and then he's not nice. He's not like his dad. He's mean to the per to the Egyptians. He murders the avatar of Egyptian gods, the, the the fatted calf, this giant fat bull, and then he has a barbecue for his his men. You can, if you're Egyptian, that's 
a her- terrible insult. They revolt, and then in revolting, he's even meaner, right? Now he's going to bring in the Assyrian terrorism, right? He ties up people and throws. If you're looking at the video, you see this. He's tying up people. He's enslaving them. He's going to throw um, rebel leaders into the Nile in order to, one, um, drown, and two, pollute the Nile is the idea. And so what happens is the Egyptians hate him, and by extension, the Persians. And so they're going to revolt all the time. Hebrews, right on the other side of the Sinai, never revolt. Egyptians revolt all the time. If any Persian king ever looks weak, ever loses a battle, the Egyptians revolt. They hate the Persians. What about Darius? Well, Cambyses will die. And there's a couple of different stories, but he never, he's not murdered. And there's a story that he goes crazy, and this is why he's so mean. And the most typical story is he he hurt himself with his sword, whether or he got injured in battle, but he got an infection and he died. He did he wasn't murdered by his own men. He wasn't whacked by a nobleman who was like, oh my God, he's so crazy. He, he died more or less a natural death. Darius is a cousin. He's also known, if you're more English, British, Darius. This is Darius I, not the guy who will fight Alexander. That's, that's some ancestor long in the future, 150 years, some great, 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 great grand nephew type of thing. Darius is a cousin, and he's an officer in Cambyses' army. So he's not related to Cyrus directly. So he's not tied to, like, I have to be the new Cyrus. But when Cambyses dies, he doesn't have an heir. And so, like, there's six guys, six homeboys who are like, let's run the empire together. We're all friends. We'll have a WhatsApp, and we'll, like, text each other on how we're doing. And Darius is like, that's great, and then murders the other five guys. He's like, no, there can only be one king. There can only be one, and I'm going to be the guy. In this way, he's like Stalin in the 1930s. He's going to murder all the other guys who think they could also run the show or run parts of the show. No, Darius is going to be the man. Okay, but he's still nice. He goes back to the niceness. Now, he murders the guys who want to be king. That's what you have to do. But he's nice to the people he's conquered. And how is he going to be nice to these people that are already conquered? Well, he's going to build an empire. Cyrus conquered one. Cambyses added to it, but there's nothing holding it together. What Darius is going to do is build, 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 build infrastructure to unite the empire. And to do so, unlike the Assyrians who used slave labor, the Persians are going to hire. They're going to hire the best and the brightest. They're going to hire and pay well. Not Persians, because Persians are in the military. Persians already got good things. They're going to hire foreign peoples, non-Persians, conquered people. First thing they're going to build is Persepolis, the city of the Persians. Why? Because again, you need a massive city to compete with Babylon, just like Nineveh. Babylon is so big, it's so impressive that if you don't have a big city, no one takes you seriously. (coughs) So you have to have one. 
So the the they they conquer this empire and they go, well, we're really important, and everyone goes, okay, you're tough, but where's your city? And they're like, what city? We don't live in cities. And they're like, oh, look at Babylon. And they're like, oh wow, Babylon's really cool. Got to have a Babylon, or we're not taking you seriously. It's kind of like having needing to have a a um, a you're not a real city unless you have a uh, you know a hundred story skyscraper or the Eiffel Tower. To be fair, if you're Paris, you just need the Eiffel Tower and you're done, right? But that was their answer to the American skyscraper. So they're going to build this massive city. Now, again, like Nineveh, it's a capital. It's not a real city where people live. It's where administrative stuff happens. And this way, it's like Brasilia, the capital of Brazil. Most Brazilians live in the south in Sao Paulo, Rio de Janeiro. Meanwhile, Brasilia is in the middle of the Amazon. It's this massive city. Not that many people live there that aren't related to the government or being paid by the government or selling stuff to people who work for the government. So Persepolis is like Washington, D.C. It's a good city, but it's not New York. It's not Philly. He's going to pay people well. He's going to bring people together, and they're going to exchange knowledge. And one of the things they're going to exchange is where they're from. So you got Greeks and Indians coming together, and they're gonna they're gonna do their artwork. They're gonna build what they know how to build. They're gonna the Greeks will do their columns. The Indians will do the stonework, right? And then during lunch, they'll hang out with each other. They'll take a break, and they'll be like, "Where are you from?" "Oh, we're Greek." "Where the hell is that?" "Oh, it's two thousand miles that way to the left." "Where are you from?" "Well, we're from the Indus River." "Well, where the hell is that?" "I never heard of that." Oh, it's 2,000 miles that way, the other way. And they look at each other and they go, wait a minute. We're 2,000 miles that way, and you're 2,000 miles that way. That means the Persians own everything in between? And some Persian guy's like, yep, uh-huh, we did that. Mm-hmm, I built that. And so you get this exchange of knowledge, and it makes the Persians look even more impressive. All of these people brought together who all say the Persians are paying them well. Oh, look, the Persians are paying us well. That's nice. And then they go home and be like, oh, they're Persians. And like, they're actually pretty cool. Like, they treated us pretty well. The second thing they build is communication highways, kind of like the Internet. These aren't highways like our highways. These are not trade highways. These are not Roman highways. This is specifically like Pony Express telegraph wire highways these are highways so that the information so that letters can go from one part of the empire quickly to the to the capital this allowed the persian king to be the best informed king in the world it was a communication revolution tying the place together the best example is a revolt of the ionian greeks who were at the edge of the world in the west and now what the Ionian Greeks, when they revolted in 500 BC, what they thought was, we are so far away. We are 2,500 miles away. We are so far away. It will take the king of Persia a year to find out about the revolution. He'll then send somebody back to make sure that his knowledge is correct, that there is a revolt. That guy then has to come back, so that's another year. The king then has to put his army together, which will be six months to a year. And then he's got to march back, which is another year. 
And any good king will look at all that and go, eh, forget them. The Greeks just aren't worth it. That's what they thought. They thought they were so far away and communication was so slow and transportation was so slow that they would win without actually having to fight a battle because it would, they just weren't worth it. But because of the communication highways, all of that happens in 18 months. The Persian king shows up within 18 months and it's like, what? Who caused this? Who started this? And the Greeks are like, what are you doing here? He's like, well, I'm the Persian king. Oh, what? But you, it's, 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 you were supposed to be here five years from now or never. He's like, well, I'm here now because I know what's going on in my own kingdom. And that's the communication highway. Three, more war. Darius adds, he's going to be like Cambyses, he's going to be like Cyrus. He adds more to the empire. He conquers the Indus River Valley. He conquers parts of Europe, what's called Thrace. Um... The what is now European Turkey, basically, uh, Byzantium, part of what would be called Byzantium, uh, to the edge of Greece, basically. He attacks Athens, and he does all this using an imperial army. Remember, the Assyrians had a national army. Only Assyrians could be in a national army. Darius, Cyrus will have an imperial army. So let's talk about the Persian army. The first thing is, it's an imperial army. Anybody can join it. No matter what you are, you're Egyptian, you're Phoenician, you're Hebrew, you're Lydian, you're Armenian, you're Babylonian, you could join. Everybody can join. Which meant everyone would get a percentage of the victory. The Persians were willing to take less and share it in order to get a bigger army that could win more battles. So the first thing about the Imperial Army is it's huge because anybody can join. It's 250,000 people. It is 10 times the size of a regular army. Of a, I shouldn't even say a regular army. Of a large army in the ancient world. It is the largest army humans put together until... Napoleon, though there are exceptions for for Chinese armies and maybe even Indian armies. I am not enough of a of a Han or Tang. Tang the Tang dynasty probably puts together a hundred and fifty, two hundred thousand person army in China. I wouldn't be surprised. I just don't know enough. But in Europe, in the West, you don't get a size of that army until Napoleon. That's how far ahead of everybody the Persians are in logistics. Meaning they could feed those people. That is Babylon on the move. Think about that. It is the largest city in the world moving five to ten miles a day. Two, everyone will fight in their home style. So the Babylonians fight on chariots. Indians will fight with elephants. Egyptians will fight with um, archer, archers. The Phoenicians will bring their navy. Right? Uh, the Lydians and the Persians will fight on cavalry. Everyone fights in their own style, which they're experts in. 
The Persians don't make people fight like Persians. The advantage of all this is diversity. The imperial army is too big to fight. Most people just surrender. This happens to the Macedonians. The Macedonians during the Persian Wars just surrender because they're like, just kick, move that army. It's going to eat everything. Just go invade Greece. We're fine. We're, we surrender. We're done. You can't fight it. It's 250,000 people. The second thing is they fight in their home style, meaning there's too many different styles to defeat them all. So let's go back on the video. Let's go back to the different styles. All right, you can defeat the Persian. So you get your men together. You put your shields up. You can defeat the Persian cavalry charging at you, right? You push them back. All right, well, they're going to send Indian elephants at you. Well, now you have to spread out. Well, now, now that you're spread out, they're going to send in African rhinos at you. They actually don't, but it's in the 300 movie. But And then once you're broken from the African rhinos, in come the infantry that now you're, you're, you're too dis your men are all fakakta. They're all over the place. They can't group up together, and they're, you're just destroyed. It doesn't, like, no matter, you can't defend against all these different styles. You pick one, the other ones will defeat you. Sooner or later, the Persians will have a method that will defeat your defense. As the Persians win... It shows you shouldn't fight them. You'll just lose. They keep winning. They defeat Lydia. They conquer Egypt. They overwhelm Babylon. They keep winning. They invade India, which is across a desert, into the mountains, and down a giant river. Like, that's not nothing. And they do it. And they do it. They keep doing it in complicated ways. They build, to invade Greece, they're going to build a bridge across the, the that will bridge Egypt and uh, Egypt that will bridge Europe and Asia the Hellspont where where um, Istanbul is today a bridge will not be built there till the 20th century to the late 20th century the Persians build a bridge the Persians built a canal at Sinai like that's what the Persians could do and it just made it like, you can't fight them. It's crazy to fight them. How do you win? So all of these advantages just freaked people out. They were too diverse, too good at how they fought, too many styles of how they fought, too big. They kept, they, they, they're undefeated. They keep winning. But there are disadvantages. The Imperial Army is too big to feed, to organize, to control. The Persian king isn't a general. The Persian king can't control 250,000 men. Xerxes at Salamis shows this. Xerxes at Salamis, Darius's son, Darius's son, at the Battle of Salamis against the Athenian navy and other Greek ships, watches the battle. He goes to the top of a mountain, Mount Agalius, sits down on his golden throne, and says, go. And that's it. They do a little flag, and the battle starts. He doesn't command troops. He doesn't move them around the battlefield. He's not a chess master. It's too big. The Persian king goes, go. And basically the only part of the army the Persian king can control 
is the Persian-speaking part. The other parts do their own thing. Two, and that brings us to the home style. This is not one army working together. This is 15 little armies acting alone. See, the Assyrians were all Assyrian, so they knew how to fight together. They all spoke the same language. They all had the same values. They all had the same training. Not these guys. Indian elephanteers do not know anything about working with Egyptian infantry. And neither of them have ever fought naval battles like the Phoenicians. So it's not one army. It's actually 15 little ones who all do their own thing during a battle. So what does that mean about defeat? Defeat hurts Persian legitimacy. If victory makes them seem invincible, defeat makes the whole thing like Jenga fall apart. If an army of this size can lose, if an army this complex can lose, then that king must suck. That king's not worth fighting for. That king is not worth following. And since everyone is in the army, like every different culture is in it, everyone will know about the defeats because people will eventually go home. Either they go home and they say, oh my God, we got defeated, or they're dead and they don't go home. So people in the empire, they can't, defeat can't be hidden in a way kind of the Assyrians could because they just didn't tell people. They just didn't let people know if they were defeated. Now, they're not defeated very often. They're defeated very rarely. But defeat in Persia, because it used everybody, spreads. The, 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 the stories spread. So when Xerxes is defeated at Salamis, when Darius and his army, he's not there, but his army is defeated at Marathon, people in India knew it. People in Egypt revolted. They knew it within weeks. They're like, oh my God, the Persians suck. Darius is a terrible king. Xerxes is weak. And so defeat meant the entire structure started to wobble. Like Jenga when you pull out a little too many pieces. So what happens to the Persian Empire? Well, it collapses. Like all the empires we're going to talk about in this cult in this class. Um... And it starts with defeat, just like we talked about. Defeat versus the Greeks, who are at the end of the world. Darius I and his son Xerxes both suffer defeats. Darius at Marathon, Xerxes at Salamis. Equals, they don't have victory. Not winning makes the Persians look weak. And what does that do? It makes small places start to revolt or simply drift away. They stop listening. Like your puppy who's interested in some other smell somewhere and just walks off and you're like, puppy, puppy, puppy. And they're just not listening to you. And you're like, I have a treat. And they don't even look at you. Like your empire doesn't, your puppy doesn't need to eat your face to stop listening to you, to reject you being their owner. So what do you do? Well, kind of like some people do with their puppies. They get mean. They're like, they go and pick them up. They go, oh, come here, puppy. They, they yell at their puppy, right? So they're not nice. Well, does that make the people like them or not like them? Now that they're not being nice, 
the people are like, you're just like the Assyrians. And in come Alexander and his Macedonians and his Greek allies. Now, Alexander's not Greek. Alexander's Macedonian. And they invade in the 320s BCE. So about 200 years after Cyrus. And they win. They defeat the Persian army under Darius III. And by crushing that Persian army in three major battles, he go, Alexander goes to the governors and says, do you want to fight me or do you want to accept me? And the governors go, hey, you won. We'll accept you. Winner takes the spoils, man. And so these even Persian governors are kind of willing to accept Alexander as their leader. Why? Because he won. And what happens? Greek culture replaces Mesopotamian culture. The Mesopotamian culture we started talking about with Sumer, bronze, and the lunar calendar, and cuneiform, and Gilgamesh, Hammurabi's code, right? The Assyrians, the Hebrew Old Testament, even Egyptian building, all of that gets replaced by Greek culture, by the Greek way of doing things. And Greek will replace the culture of the Middle East for a thousand years till it's replaced by the Arabs. So the Middle East, from Egypt to Mesopotamia to even parts of Persia, become European. Turkey is not Turkey yet. It's Asia Minor. It's very much part of Europe. In the 20th century, it's been in Europe. It's out of Europe. It's in Europe. It's out of Europe. In the age of the Greeks, after Alexander, for the next thousand years, it is a European place. Is clearly European. And so Persian defeat brought the end of a 4,000-year-old culture. And the trauma of not of being important and then being conquered, of being secondary. The Europeans, these Greeks, are telling us what to do now. And the, you get this trauma in the in Southwest Asia, in what? Anglos call the Middle East because they lose their culture. They lose their language. They lose their economics. Now everything goes through Greece. They lose their gods. They lose their writing. Cuneiform is replaced by the alphabet, by the Greek alphabet, by the Phoenician alphabet. And they're watching it go. Like we can, we have the records. We have people writing about losing their stuff. They're like, we used to worship these gods and now we're not allowed to anymore. Or nobody does. Even if the Greeks don't disallow, uh, worshiping of a god it's just like people want to be greek so they worship the greek gods and so it's like the old gods just died the old styles died the old culture died the old clothes and dress died and everyone became greek became european and there's a trauma in losing that because they didn't choose it they got conquered they became they went from leading the world under the persians the culture of Mesopotamia is the most important culture west of China. And because China at this point is in the warring states period, it's arguable that Mesopotamian culture is the most important culture in the world at the point of the Persians. It is the most advanced culture in the world. All of that's gone. with the Greeks, with the Alexander coming in. And it's replaced. It's not assimilated. It's just replaced. It's gone. Yeah, the Greeks will take some of the stuff. 
Egyptian math, Egyptian science. But a lot of it is just like, eh, this is Persian. Eh, it's Babylonian. Eh. I mean, they'll take Babylonian time. The idea that everything is based on 60, 60 seconds, 60 minutes, that's Babylonian, and we still use it today. But Babylonian gods, Phoenician gods, they're gone. Even the, even the Hebrews almost lose Yahweh, almost lose their God. They, they needed the Maccabean revolt. This is where we get the story of Hanukkah and the celebration of Hanukkah. That's the Greeks. That's revolting nothing against the Persians. That's revolting against the Greeks who are like, you know, it's time for you to start worshiping some Greek gods, not this crazy Mesopotamian god. And so we watch the trauma. We can read the trauma of the people who are watching their culture being left behind, of watching the old ways disintegrate, of watching the young kids becoming Greek and being like, but you're not, you weren't born Greek, you're Egyptian. Why are you speaking Greek? And they're like, because we're cool, dad. And, you know, Alexandria in Egypt becomes a cosmopolitan, replaces Babylon, becomes a cosmopolitan city. And it's a Greek city. It didn't exist until the Greeks built it. So we see the, the, the height of Mesopotamian culture and success, military success, and then within 200 years, its collapse, its defeat, and its replacement. In our next episode, we're going to move out of Mesopotamia, and we're going to move to Egypt. So we're kind of going to start all over in time. We're going to go back in time because Egypt starts around the time of Sumer. And so we got to go back like a typewriter, like, like, I don't know, like swimming laps or music score. We're, we're going back to the beginning and we're starting over like a new paragraph or we got to start at the, the left again and move back in time. So be careful, be safe. See you soon. Take care. Thank you.